0: Please be advised, all music tracks used in this production are sole property of Kelson Communications and are original compositions. Also, please be advised that the sound bites you'll hear from Dr. Richard Stone I was granted permission to use from administrative personnel at the VA in Washington. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. Coming up will be a Kelson on the Air social work podcast special series entitled Social Workers, Confronting COVID-19 with Compassion, Courage, and Character. Over the next several weeks, you will hear from social workers from all over the country, share their stories and their experiences battling and dealing with this devastating pandemic. It is my greatest wish that these stories will garner a new level of appreciation for the vitally important role that social workers play in confronting the challenges, heartbreak and tragedies this coronavirus is wreaking on all of us. Social workers are there for everyone right now, as they are always. To open up this series, please hear this profound message from Dr. Richard Stone, executive in charge of the Veterans Health Administration in Washington, D.C. Following that, you'll hear Dr. Laura S. Abrams, MSW, professor and chair of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, Social Welfare Department. Please listen, learn and be inspired. Thank you for tuning in.
1: Today, I want to talk to you about our social work community. You know, social workers are always there. They're always part of our team, and they're always interacting with our patients for various specific needs. But now with social isolation, people uh, people have needed social workers for the first time, and our social workers, for the most part, have worked face-to-face with our patients and their families. Now they can't do that. It's very difficult work and it's unprecedented the level of support we've gotten from our social works community. I want you to think about how much financial instability has, uh, has been induced during all of this shutdown. Uh, people are worried about money, people are worried about their jobs, people are worried about each other. And it's our social workers who are the glue that holds this together. And in any really good healthcare system, The social workers are out in front trying to make sure families are well taken care of and all of the unique needs that are not met by our medical professionals are really handled by the social work community. So today I'd like you to take a minute and just thank your social workers that are part of your team and recognize how much extraordinary work they've been able to accomplish throughout this pandemic. Thank you.
0: To everyone tuning in, welcome. This is Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. You're listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast, the program that promotes, celebrates, uplifts, and highlights the social work profession. This podcast aims to educate the general public to the vital contributions professional social workers make in every aspect of society every day. We have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Laura S. Abrams, and she's professor and chair of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, Social Welfare Department. And Professor Abrams scholarship focuses on improving the well-being of youth and young adults with histories of incarceration. Her ethnographic studies have examined youth experiences of criminality, risk, and institutions seeking to reshape their identities through both therapeutic and punitive practices. These themes are presented in her first book, Compassionate Confinement, A Year in the Life of Unit C, Rutgers University Press 2013. Her second book was Everyday Desistance, The Transition to Adulthood from Formerly Incarcerated Youth, Rutgers University Press 2013. 2017 it is my distinct pleasure and honor to introduce our listening audience dr laura s abrams professor and chair of the ucla luskin school of public affairs social welfare department welcome dr abrams
2: well
3: thank you it's great to be here and talk with you yes thank I, you so much for having me
0: oh you're welcome you welcome the, the the honor is certainly all mine so i wanted to open things up with uh the current health care crisis that we're in mm-hmm. It's been dubbed by the World Health Organization as a pandemic, and that's COVID-19. And what I'd like to do is just have you give our listeners a little insight into basically COVID-19 and social work from, from the perspective that you've experienced it from being a, a department chair in academia as a social work professional. Hmm. Well, that's,
3: that's a great question. And, what was really interesting to me when COVID hit and it felt like it happened so fast, you know, it was okay. There's a few cases and what's going to happen. And then a week later I'm meeting with the university and they're saying we're going to have to go remote possibly. And then the next day it was kind of everyone's home and we're remote and, you know, we're going to have to be, remote instructors for this, for the rest of the year. It, just, it felt uh, this cascade of crisis. And I think that, the, that was kind of a universal experience around the United States, especially for those of us in large urban areas. Yes. And so social workers in our settings, we had to actually ask our students to stay home and not go to their internships. Yes. Um, We just couldn't take that risk at that time. And that was very disappointing for students. They wanted to finish. They wanted to terminate with their clients. um, And some were allowed to do that if they had a remote option at their placement. But many just had to stop, basically, their field work. So that was really quite hard on our students. Mm -hmm. And um, also, from a department chair's perspective, I had to kind of manage the day-by-day crises um, of these decisions around risk, while also trying to make sure that the faculty and the students felt safe and comfortable in making these quick transitions um, to remote instruction and to remote field education. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of been the last fourteen weeks of my life. Um, has just been to make this very quick transition and then ease into it over the last ten weeks while we've been in our last quarter of the of the school year. We we are we go till uh, mid June. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, The other interesting thing that happened to me personally was when this first hit COVID and I was sheltered in place with my family and my two kids in high school who were also doing, you know, remote education. um, I talked with my friend who's a nurse practitioner, my friend Rebecca, Mm -hmm. and she told me she was deathly afraid to go to work that she didn't have the proper protection. And this was way back in like mid-March, end of March. Um, She didn't feel that she was being protected from COVID. And so I started to think about, I wonder what social workers are feeling, you know? So kind of like you, I I dug in uh, to this topic and I... I put an announcement on our Facebook page um, for alumni. And I just said, hey, if you're still in the field and you're dealing with your work um, around COVID or anything else, let me know. Mm -hmm. And so from my living room, I did a bunch of interviews with our alumni and made videos that really dug into um, talking about confronting uh, their work in the midst of COVID. And so that was
0: really fascinating. That's um, very interesting. Now, one of the things that you mentioned was, and and I've spoken to some other professionals in academia, the fact that the students on a moment's notice had to um, go through this phase that we talk about in social work of uh, closure and termination. Mm -hmm. How how did you and your department uh, prep the students and help them to get through that, because when doing an internship or be doing field placement, students naturally, you know, depending on the population that they work with, they get really attached to whoever their their clients that they've been assigned mm-hmm. in their caseload. How did you help the students to navigate that um, once this COVID uh, pandemic became uh, something that was going to force everybody to stay home? That's a
3: that's a great question. So. One of the really fortunate things was that a lot of our field agencies were able to facilitate some connections either by phone or video um, so that students could still meet with clients remotely. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, But for the 10 or 15% who were not able to do that, it was difficult for them, and so our field education uh, faculty, you know, worked with those students around their grief and their disappointment um, because some just never got to see their clients again.
0: Wow! At yeah.
3: all, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: that can be pretty devastating, especially you know when the when the bonds form um, and then they they never got to you know say, you know, farewell, or, you know, it was nice working with you. So I'm sure they took that really, really hard. And that brings me to my next question of the COVID-19 pandemic and health disparities. Now, you know, we've heard some of the numbers and and once the uh, pandemic uh, numbers started getting reported, it did come out, you know, in various um, news outlets and all over social media that it was disproportionately affecting people of color. So can we talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit?
3: Yeah. it. I think, like, the narrative shifted from, you know, we're all in this together, right, like equal opportunity virus. And then we saw the seeds of, the underlying health disparities come out in the numbers. And I think for those of us attuned to disparities or who are in the field, like weren't totally surprised by that. And the the social workers on the ground could see, you know, yes, those in prisons who are most likely black and brown are gonna get COVID. People in homeless shelters, mm-hmm. people in nursing homes, you know, that don't have proper protection. So, it really came down to, like, who's institutionalized, who has unequal access to health care. Yes. And also, as, as one of the social workers says, you know, that was in a jail setting, they didn't even have soap, let alone hand sanitizer. So, it's the, you know, this virus revealed, like, the underbelly, really, of our, of uncared for populations that that don't have access to health care and that society was willing to throw away really yes
2: yes, yes.
3: for covid
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know and the other interesting thing or really disgusting piece i think is that as soon as we knew oh this is affecting black people more you had the white people rallying to reopen society.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Right?
3: Yes. Like, oh, wait a minute. This isn't our problem. This is their problem.
2: Right? hmm mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um,
3: so as a white person, um, I found that to be incredibly offensive, mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. honest. hmm And disappointing. Yes. Over All around. hmm
0: and uh one of the other things that you know that, that came out is that you know one of the reasons and and it's you know it's it's been a well-known fact that um some of the lower wage uh jobs and some of the gig economy um jobs many times they don't come with a uh, any type of uh health coverage at all and so there was another right. another you know interesting component where the people who might stand a chance to be mostly affected by COVID 19 you know were working also in the lower wage jobs um they had to go in they didn't have health insurance they didn't have sick time and things of that sort Mm -hmm. so that that paid played also a big role in why you know all of a sudden started being so devastating to those black and brown communities
3: exactly so it's not just health disparities it's you know, what type of jobs do people have? Who can work at home?
2: Yes. You
3: know, all of the things that, that Senator Sanders was talking about in his campaign, mm-hmm. um, we saw, right? It yes. illuminated the, the true inequalities that are now being brought to light by the current wave of protests. Um, and uprising against racism and police brutality, because that's only one, the police brutality is only one piece of it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there's anger. And I think a groundswell of allies to that anger and people standing in solidarity with the black community to say enough is enough. Yes, You know? Yeah. I find that part hopeful
0: absolutely very 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 well put um and it is interesting that you know people from all across the spectrum have taken to the streets and other than and i i have to say based on you know what I, what i've seen other than the first like you know couple of days of the protests, most of the protests around the country and and around the globe but specifically in this country the majority of the protests have always started out and and you know, proceeded and ended up peacefully. So it's not just like a a mob mentality, but it is, you know, people saying, you know, enough is enough. Uh, You know, like people need to be, get treated fairly, Um, which brings me to something else, you know, kind of going dovetailing back on the whole health Mm -hmm. disparities Uh, in social work. We talk a lot about the social determinants of health and, mm-hmm. you know, the interesting studies, that, you know, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and I'd like you to enlighten our listeners, how, um, what, what that concept means and, and the interesting fact of a person's zip code can almost determine, you know, their whole life trajectory. So can you talk to our listeners a little bit about social determinants of health, please? Yeah,
3: well, social determinants of health, it started more as a public health concept but I think it fits well for social work with our person and environment systems perspective that we've adopted.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: But instead of looking at a person as diseased, right? You know, again, the pathology model, the medical model, we think about what are determinants of health that have to do with community level factors, Mm -hmm. like where you live, your census tract, how close are you to parks, um, you know, uh, the race, gender. Um, so it, it's thinking in a more preventative way rather than a reactive way about just treating disease symptoms, right? So we want to think about how to prevent. Uh, if we know that there's a social determinant of health, mm-hmm. we can think about prevention strategies. Yes. So, a good example for that is breast cancer.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, black women are much more likely to die from breast cancer, okay, than white women, mm-hmm. even though we get breast cancer around the same rate. Mm-hmm. So, you think about social determinants of health. Why is that? Well, it's about preventative screening.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So by the time that black women are getting diagnosed, it's advanced. But the cancers advance through the tissue to the lymph nodes or other parts of the body. And so that's why public health focuses on black women getting mammograms. hmm getting screened then we're not just treating the breast cancer we're looking at how do you is there a social lever that can be used to reduce that disparity yes so i think that's a good
0: example mm-hmm. um also um there's a you know a big factor that uh plays into social determinants of health uh wonder if you could elaborate on uh prenatal health care
3: Yes. So it does, it's a very, it's similar to the example that I gave where, you know, black women are more likely to have low birth weight babies, which can lead to a host of developmental factors Mm -hmm. because of lack of, of healthcare. Right. Yes. Um, and prenatal care. So again, you want to think about not let's, treat these babies who are low birth weight and have a lifetime of care or you know deal with we don't want to deal with the neonatal complications you want to get women into health care mm-hmm. black women yes women latinx community right mm-hmm. so it's just a different it's a way of kind of thinking about prevention and public health that really aligns with social work I think yes. in terms of our mission mm-hmm.
0: And it's almost like, you know, trying to get, you know, society to kind of be more uh, proactive as opposed to reactive. So, know um, was an old saying my 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 uh, late foster mother used to use she, said, uh, she, she used to say you have to take care before take care comes so all all of those preventive uh measures um you know early screening and you know uh, you know making sure that um young mothers have uh access to prenatal health care and things of that sort also you know when you talk about person and environment, you know the stress level of living in low income areas and those those things also play a lot into um how a a fetus is developing if there's a high level level of stress and uh, domestic violence you know that tends to you know cause a lot of issues um, we know that uh, those types of things if you know when a mother's stress levels go up uh, it, you know anybody's stress level goes up, they release certain chemicals and and obviously that affects the yet unborn child and so those are some things also that, that that people need to be aware of so we need to make sure that you know Everyone is making a livable and affordable wage that you know has you know proper health care and you know making sure education is within the reach of uh, of everybody so that they can inspire to be all that they can be and as you said, those are some of the ideals um, upon which social work is based on um, so what I think is you know appropriate to do now is to kind of kind of shift the conversation to some of your publications and I in that you you you've done with uh incarceration especially with adults and uh and youth. Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that in the whole framework of what we're seeing going on globally yeah
3: sure so thank you um so my work is not on health per se um but I think health relates to everything that we talked about because Health isn't just physical, it's also emotional and spiritual health and, and you know, relationship health, you know, um, all of those aspects of, of well-being, I like to call call mm. health well-being.
2: Yes.
3: Um, so my research has focused on how to improve the well-being of folks who have spent much of their adolescence uh, incarcerated. Uh, whether that's in group homes or juvie or detention or boot camps or correction or jails and prisons, I look at late adolescence and early adulthood as a chance to really be able to thrive mm-hmm. and and form new identities. It's a very transition oriented period, but you know, for youth and adults, young adults who have histories of being in and out of institutions. It can be really hard to find your footing. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be hard to advance your skills or your, your uh, career when you haven't had a large history of work or a high education level. So I, I really try to hone in on studying people's lives and how they work around those barriers I do very in-depth interviewing with people over length of time. Um, I try to follow what happens in their lives. And so my two books are very ethnographic in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, in that they tell stories essentially about human lives and kind of the windy path that people find uh, sometimes to wellness. And sometimes they don't find that path,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know. What yeah.
0: what have you found would because be one of the common denominators of um, those who have that experience of being mm-hmm. incarcerated at a young age, uh being in and out of the criminal justice system, and, and then coming out and possibly faltering um, after they've gotten their release? Mm-hmm. You know, what what mm-hmm. some of the common factors that you found?
3: I think some of the common factors, substance abuse, is. A big one. So folks that are substance dependent dependent and didn't get
2: treatment
3: uh, or don't sustain treatment, just have a tough time staying out of activities that would lead to further incarceration. And there's some underlying lack of belief in themselves as well at times.
0: Yeah, that's a big one.
3: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's more person centered. But I think there's also, you know, some real structural disadvantage, too. And folks coming out who don't land in a safe space, like women who go back to, Abusive boyfriends or children who go back to abusive homes—they don't really—they're not able to find their footing. Mm-hmm. You know, so they need a safe space to land, and that's not always available to people. One of the things I argue is we've extended foster um, care to age twenty-one in some states, mm-hmm. um, and and the availability of housing and and education grants right I think formerly incarcerated youth need a similar bridge to adulthood a Excellent lot of them point do.
0: yes yes
3: mm-hmm. but but we don't give them anything <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah mm-hmm. hi this is Silas your e-journalism social work advocate I'm the host of the Kelson on the air social work podcast heard and hosted right here on anchor FM and I love it try it and you'll love it too And here's why. First, you get an RSS feed, which is absolutely critical for distribution of your podcast. Your show will be distributed and heard on seven additional podcast platforms besides Anchor. Platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and much, much more. And get this, they even offer analytics so that you can see how well your podcast is doing. And as if that weren't enough, they also give you a breakdown of what each chart or graph means. In addition to that, when you host your podcast on Anchor, you get international exposure. That's right. Your podcast is heard in different countries around the globe. And just so you know that they're really in your corner, they provide you with info about sponsorship opportunities as well. So for secure services for your podcast, make sure to use your Anchor podcasting services. Now, when you mentioned foster care, you know, you know, you know, I've done some, you know, some some research on that, and uh, you know, you know, have some, you know, also some some personal firsthand experience with that. Is any of your studies, have you tracked anything that has, has affected foster youth who've gotten involved in the criminal justice system? And is there mm-hmm. a difference in how they bounce back or not, or how they reintegrate back into society or not?
3: I have included uh, many young people in my work who've been involved in both systems, often called crossover youth or dual-involved youth. And I think while all these young people have a lot of unaddressed trauma, mm. um, foster youth have a particular set of trauma you know, related to their abuse or neglect and shuffling between families and even being abused in foster care. Yes. And so sometimes going to juvenile hall was even a safe space at times for them, Mm -hmm. oddly enough. And that's very sad to think about because that's not a safe space in general for anyone. Exactly. Um, But sometimes they, you know, especially the girls, would tell me that they would run away because they would know that if they got picked up they could get three meals and go to school mm-hmm.
0: and the the other thing is that there, and there's been a lot of talk here in new york about um the whole aging out process uh matter of fact there was uh some legislation to to allow foster youth to stay within the system i guess a little longer like to do what you said to kind of get their footing because when foster youth age out of the system, they're they're no longer eligible to be a foster child. Then it's almost like, it's like, okay, that's it. You're on your own. They have really nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. So there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, how to give them to use a term that you just said, a softer landing spot. Uh, But with the youth, Mm -hmm. the youth that you've, um, that you've researched, um, and, and I noticed that you, um, had some research dealing with the inequalities that they face. Uh, What have some of your studies turned up as to, you know, ways to help them uh, Mm -hmm. to get past some of those inequalities and also to address that sense of low self-esteem, which causes a lot of problems. And that also Mm -hmm. leads to a lot of the the drug abuse. And, and so how has your studies shown that we as society and social work in general can further address Mm -hmm. those issues?
3: I think a lot of what it comes down to is not teaching young people who are vulnerable to be independent, but to be interdependent. Mm. That nobody does it alone. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: So much of the early foster care aging out was about independent living, transition to independence, becoming independent. But why should we expect that? of a a 20-year-old when we don't expect that of our own children Mm -hmm. who are 20. Think about it. Excellent. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I have a 17-year-old. I'm not thinking in three years he's going to be independent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I've kind of stressed in my writing that we need a model of teaching interdependence how do you call people for help who do you who do you rely on whether that's your social worker or a friend or your biological family many of these youth are so used to like being survivalists that they don't like to rely on people mm-hmm. and they don't like to rely on the government because they're they're frankly tired of social workers coming in and out of their lives mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, Yes. So actually getting young people to accept transition benefits or to stay in foster care is not that easy because they they kind of are saying, you know what, I want to go it on my own, you know. And so if we can shift the narrative a little bit to say, we're all interdependent in our society, let's help you form a support network, let's give you mentors and people that... And peers that you can rely on, that you don't have to do this alone. Mm-hmm. You
0: know, um, so that's that's one idea. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. One of the other things that that I'm sure plays a, a big role is when you talk about uh, independent versus interdependent. Well, you know, one of the things I've always thought about is most foster kids they go from home to home to home, so it's almost like as soon as they get used to feeling that like they can count on somebody, um, they get moved or they get shifted. Uh, sometimes it's for their benefit. Uh, sometimes it's because the you know the you know the the foster parents aren't you know very fit to be you know good foster parents or whatever the case may be. But yeah. they, they learn that you know, hey, I can't count on anybody. I can't really trust anybody. I'm not going to count on anybody to be there because as soon as I get comfortable and feel like I can not count on this person. I get moved or I get shifted or all of a sudden they say, you know, they can't take care of me anymore. So that independence is almost like a survival mode for many foster kids um, because they've been shifted from home to home. And I think that plays a big role in their, you know, their trust issues as well.
3: It does. And that's kind of same with the young people in the juvenile justice system. It's very similar where they want to be on their own, but they don't understand necessarily the challenges that come with that when you're a young person and you don't have that safety net of a biological family necessarily, who's going to lend you that money, you know, when your car needs a new tire or, (laughs) you know, little things, Mm -hmm. you know? And one of the things we saw in the juvenile justice book or like, yeah, pay, pay your cell phone bill, you know? Um, one of the things we saw in everyday assistance was that for some of the juvenile justice young people, they needed that support. They needed a new tire. They needed money to pay their parking fines or their citations if they didn't have their license tags. And I mean, these are young men, and they're black and brown. They get pulled over a lot. They get cited for stupid things, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm and minor things, um, but then they turn to like their old gang members or their old networks for support, and that can be risky too, yes. you know, because they're turning to those folks for support because they need that support, mm-hmm. but it opens them up to um, other dangers. Yes, you know? yes.
0: You know, the, the whole the whole uh, concept of the whole – you know, gang mentality and, you know, for youth joining a gang, um, you know, you know, research has shown that, you know, the gang members become more like their family. And, you know, they, they, they lure them in by showing them that they're going to always be there for them and, and that they can trust, you know, other gang members and the leaders of the gangs and, and the, the youth who get involved and begin to feel like that's the really, the only family that they really have. And so that's how they get lured and they get trapped and and then they start you know participating in unsavory behaviors, which then leads to involvement in the in criminal justice system and it you know, becomes a, and then when they go into the criminal justice system, you know that they call it you know the house of crime where they learn new uh, criminal activities and things of that sort. So it's almost mm-hmm. like a, a revolving door. So you know w- what are some of the things that, in your opinion, can be done. Based on your research, that might help to break that cycle with the uh, young incarcerated yeah. individuals?
3: It's a really, really difficult cycle. And I've spent a lot of time in my career trying to figure out that very question. So it's like the good news and the bad news, right? So the <laughs> good news is we have a lot fewer people being incarcerated right now that are young people. There's Closures of major state facilities. And I, I think juvenile justice reform has really gained traction. I mean, more than adult justice reform, um, at least at this point. Mm-hmm. So that's the good news, right? The bad news is we still have a lot of young people who are growing up trapped in kind of you know, cycles of being tossed between systems. I call it like passing the baton. We don't have systems that are really able to address the needs of children. It might start in school. It might start with disabilities or learning disabilities that are undiagnosed, under-addressed. Kids then act out in school. They get tossed to mental health. Mental health tosses them somewhere else. You know, they end up in the juvenile justice system eventually, mm-hmm. right? They're angry. Their underlying problems have never been addressed, you know. So it brings us back to the social determinants of health, right? Mm-hmm. If we can think about where are those levers of prevention and where are places we could intervene at an earlier stage, um, we can avoid youth. Getting into the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system, but to date, I don't think the research is quite sophisticated enough yet to really figure that out. I mean, we know certain things. We know that when youth are cared for and they have access to recreation, and they their their needs that are um, that set them apart from others are addressed. Well, they're less likely to become involved in the criminal justice system, you know, later in life. Yes. So we know certain things, but there's still groups and large groups of young people where either we're not sure how to do the prevention or the systems are just not intact. You know, mm-hmm. So while research has come a long way, there's still a lot of structural barriers to keeping youth out of the system. Yes, And frankly, you also have a cadre of workers who work in criminal and juvenile justice and jails who don't want to see the system go away. And that's why right now, I'm going to bring it back to the conversation of this week, which is about policing mm-hmm. um, and social work. So, you now have the police doing jobs like, quote-unquote, social workers.
2: Yes.
3: You know, they're they're in schools. They're dealing with discipline, apparently. They're supposed to be mentors to at-risk youth. Police are responding to mental health crises. Police are supposed to offer, you know, referrals to drug court. I mean, so on and on and on. Um, My colleague at UCLA referred to this on the news, Kelly Lytle Hernandez, as Mission creep." right? Why are we losing ground, you know, as social workers to the police, to law enforcement? It's frustrating to me, yeah. Now I just went full circle back to <laughs> Yes, yes
0: you did. Yes you did.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: sorry about that. <laughs> no, it it's it's fine because there was a lot of uh talk about the you know the role that uh you know police are playing and that police departments should start employing and utilizing social workers on a regular basis. Uh I know that there was a lot of movement on that within the uh the uh, the, the mental health uh fields where there was a, a person who was in some type of mental health distress and there was involvement with the police, they found it much more effective and productive for a social worker to come and intercede. And that usually wound up having a better outcome because of, the training that we have and how we can engage and how we know how to de escalate. Whereas, you know, police, you know, they're trained to, you know, take control of the situation um, and, you know, and make sure it doesn't get out of hand, where, you know, a social worker can come in and assess. And so, yeah, they do need to, like, start thinking about, you know, better ways to have social workers do the social work and, and not leave that up to the police because a lot of times they don't understand or they come in with a preconceived notion. So I think it makes sense to have a social worker to intercede in a uh, potentially tense situation um, because that's the training that we have is to how to reach out and and get through to the person. I saw a great piece of social work from somebody that's not really a social worker. I'm sure everybody saw it when uh, Denzel Washington uh, a couple of weeks ago interceded with the individual that was about to get involved with some police activity and oh you know, yeah yeah so i think and, and that's a, a, a good example of how a social worker would have handled it as opposed to law enforcement
3: yes um, i saw someone posted on you know i've been a little bit of a social media addict lately unfortunately um <laughs> but i saw someone posted on facebook you know this notion of defund the police is scares people it jolts people I think it's a very effective slogan uh, not not only to really uncover how much of our city's county state budget goes to law enforcement which is overwhelmingly dark when you see the numbers mm-hmm. right but also we get defunded and dismantled social services all the time all
0: the time
3: yes. So it's like, let's flip it on its head, right? Where's the outcry when people defund a social program? Cut slash our budget. You know, why are caseloads so high? Mm -hmm. Why don't social workers have unions like the police do? I mean, in other words, I'm really happy to see this dialogue and this discourse um, and I actually think that we more than ever as social workers need to insert ourselves in these conversations. Yes. Um and say, you know what or I'll say I support this movement and I would hope that any divestment in policing would go toward prevention and social service programs. Yes. You know. Uh,
0: mhm. Shift mm-hmm. the resources. hmm Yep. Into the community.
3: Yes. What I mm-hmm. think,
0: you know, is really an interesting, you know, point is that take, for instance, social workers in the schools. Hugely important. And we're talking about trained social workers, school social workers. Yes. Um, I used to do that job. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the interesting thing that we've found and, you know, we, we've had a lot of battles here in New York is that whenever the budget gets tight, the social work position usually is the first one that gets eliminated when that should be the one that always stays intact. And same thing with, you know, when we talk about, you know, dealing with, you know, you know, situ- situations in the community, you know, social workers really need to be there because, you know, they, they are trained. We are trained, I should say and and how to handle those situations same thing with the schools and when you talked about you know budgets and funding you know some schools have like two social workers for you know uh school districts with four or five different schools and that that really doesn't do a service or justice to somebody and those social workers make a huge huge difference Uh, I've heard some of the stories of some of the things that they do, they go way above and beyond of what their quote unquote job title tends to describe. And people don't even realize some of the things that social workers do. So we need to kind of make sure that society realizes that wherever we are called, there's a profound difference that we make. You know, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, like I do the you know, the topics that I do is because I want people to realize that, you know, social workers are integral parts of every, 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 every aspect of society. So uh, on, on that note, I'd like to give you an opportunity to mm-hmm. wrap up and uh, just leave sure. our listeners with a closing thought um, for, this, okay. for this interview.
3: Wow. Well, we've talked about a lot of things. <laughs> you know, one thing I think I want to say is that more and more, and I've been in this field for almost 30 years i you know there's a lot of talk right now about this idea of well social workers can do the job and so i just implore us to think about yes we can do the job but can we now do this work differently mm-hmm. you know can we be less agents of social control and more agents of empowerment
2: mm-hmm. you know
3: in communities and can we also confront our legacies of reinforcing racism um, and racial disparities and discrimination. Because I think we've trained this whole new generation of social workers and they're younger and they're more racially and ethnically diverse and they have had different life experiences. You know, they're the 20-somethings. They're, they're ready to go, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so it's, it's kind of time for us To let them leave,
0: Mm -hmm. too. Absolutely. Excellent point. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Kelson on the Air Social Work Podcast um, with me, Silas, your e-journalism social work advocate. And again, Mm -hmm. I'd like to thank my special guest, Dr. Laura Abrams, professor and chair of the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs and Social Welfare Department. Uh, You've been a brilliant guest. And thank you so much for contributing to this valuable and needed discussion, Dr. Abrams. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for having me. This is Silas your e-journalism social work advocate and host of the show you've been listening to the kelson on the air social work podcast this and all other programs are available on the apple itunes SoundCloud, spotify and anchor podcast platforms go to any search engine and type in kelson on the air in the search window to hear this show in its entirety thank you for tuning in this has been a kelson communications production